But for those of you listening out there, thank you for tuning in to the Daily Sports Report. For Morris Fabry, Leo Blavin, Jeremy Parks, and Adam Broadnax, my name is CJ Stone. We are going to leave you guys with a good night and a go blue. into the end zone for a touchdown. Thrown up in the air and it's intercepted by Jordan Lewis. Great play on the ball. Looks to his right and connects. Leeching for the end zone. Touchdown, Michigan. Ticket, you're a homeboy under that hair. Dead gum television. Mr. Jaffa, I, uh, I can only say that I find your statement to be boorish. to What Else But WCBN FM in Ann Arbor 88.3 Mamón, hijo puta, cabrón Well, uh, good evening. Uh, you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And kind of an interesting event-packed week of lots of fairy tales and lots of scary sales. <laughs> Consistent with Halloween, we got Keystone, we got what seems to be a planted bomb in the luggage compartment of a plane that crashed over uh, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Uh, by the way, this is Russia's worst air disaster in their history, and uh, of course this uh, is going to play probably a big role in the Syrian civil war that rages on with migrants flowing to and fro and all over Europe. Ben Carson is uh, beleaguered at this point, to say the least, and Donald Trump appears on SNL. I heard about that after the fact. I think I forgot all about it. Well, I heard the reviews were... Mixed. Not good. <laughs> I guess uh, predictable was putting it charitably. 
Uh, the Keystone Pipeline, that's gotten way too much print over the years. We have uh, elections around the country with a lot of local initiatives that had all sorts of interesting implications. The death of Colaby. And maybe my favorite of all, the Italian marathoner who got lost for two days. <laughs> what a story. I was kind of wondering if Ben Carson might have been <laughs> in the New York Marathon. Well, uh, that fact may yet emerge. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk too much about Ben Carson. He's said enough uh, foolish things over the last couple of months that he's finally getting some scrutiny. Well, when you have no record on which to, you know, record of public service, uh, what do you expect? Of yeah. course people are going to scrutinize. It's it's the nature of the business. Well, and he's looked like deer in the headlights on yeah. when he's been answering questions. It's kind of interesting that he uses the word political correctness a lot to defend his uh, foolish statements, which is obviously an appeal to the base. We discussed last week that he's obviously made some inroads in the evangelical um, community, and it's interesting that Mike Huckabee was one of the people bounced from the uh, the varsity team, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> along with Chris Christie. But uh, Chris, don't call me Water Boy, Christie. Lindsey Graham uh, isn't even going to be in the debate at all, uh, and the only reason I comment on that is uh, he's made a lot of appearances in New Hampshire. And he's probably the only really outspoken hawk that's actually running for president. The Kentucky gubernatorial race was somewhat interesting because of the role uh, that Obamacare and the war on coal and all of these cultural issues played. But I don't think we need to talk too much about Kentucky. We're playing the Hoosiers this week. Uh -huh. What is a Hoosier? According to my Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary, circa 1940, a Hoosier is a redneck from Kentucky. Really? <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> I thought Hoosiers were Indiana. That's They are. Okay. See, well, Indi course, Indiana was, was, was uh, settled by people from Kentucky. Indeed, yeah. In fact, uh, Indiana is the most heavily Klan-active uh, northern state. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things about Kentucky, I'll just end... We don't really need to talk about the new governor because he, his main appeal apparently were these cultural right wing issues. Apparently, made a habit of dropping by Chickafeel restaurants. <laughs> I think you might know a little bit about that. That's related to uh, gay marriage and other associated health care issues. And he paid a visit to the beleaguered Kim Davis when she was. Oh. How thoughtful. In prison. She was a political prisoner. Ted Cruz was the other member of that team, along with Mike Huckabee. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all uh, joking aside, um, I think that this Syrian uh, situation is uh, getting more and more interesting because it's obvious that uh, there are no good options. There's no solution in the pipeline. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens going forward with Russia's, um, shall we say, response to this event in Egypt. I read that a third of all of the Egyptian tourists that visit uh, the tourist town where this plane allegedly 
Sheikh El Sharm, which is host Charm. to uh, a number of uh, top-level negotiation meetings. But in the fine print, you discover that this plane actually started at a regional hub, and this is obviously the soft spot that these, uh, well, for the time and for the sake of our discussion, no claim that, that ISIL might have been involved in this, which is kind of odd because Russia thus far, according to all of the military experts, have actually hit the sort of hodgepodge of other Syrian rebel groups, only hitting ISIS here and there. But I think that the approach that the United States has, which is, you know, they've had these high-level talks in Vienna, is I think that they really have to focus on a four-country arrangement and kind of keep the Saudis out of it, because I don't think their role is quite as urgent. But Turkey and Iran and Russia and the United States, if they can all get on the same side, something may happen. But uh, the idea that we're going to be able to train rebels with uh, 50 or 30 military advisors, whatever Obama sent recently. We've been down that road before. Is fanciful. And it is fascinating, by the way, that just over a year ago, um, in an article about a CIA study regarding the success of the United States arming rebels the, the headlines are CIA study says arming rebels seldom works dated the 15th of October this is an analysis of covert aid and that this report had been prepared by the Obama administration commissioned in 2012 article by Mark Mazzetti which uh, he somehow got a hold of this and it said uh, that the studies were commissioned in the midst of the Obama administration's protracted debate about whether to wade into the Syrian civil war, concluded that many past attempts by the agency to arm foreign forces covertly had minimal impact on the long-term outcome of the conflict. They were even less effective, the report found, when militias fought without any direct American support on the ground. Remember That's those, the CIA. Yeah. Remember those crazy Contras and their insistence on attacking schools, medical facilities? And, of course, there were the arms, Golan rebels, uh, the Mujahideen in the, in the 1980s in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. America still has troops there, though allegedly not ground troops. Um, Obama actually commissioned this report, and I think that it's quite clear that one thing he's not going to do is send in ground forces. So who are the ground forces? What is Russia really up to? I think their short-term goals are quite clear. They're trying to bolster the Assad regime that is obviously openly reported that they're running out of recruits. And, of course, they're protecting their own military interests in Latakia. Um, And the Syrian civil war, as I made an observation a couple of weeks ago, is is certainly the number one problem in the world today. Uh, This migrant crisis in Europe is going to remain unaddressed and the flow of the the numbers aren't diminishing at all not at all numbers pouring out of the region and uh, solutions are 
you know, while Europe is having this endless debate, it's rather remarkable. I don't know that diplomacy in which you get a ceasefire before you get substantial victories on the ground are really going to work. So as, shall we say, admirable as Kerry and Obama's approach has been, um, going forward, I the only thing that I can see is more of an, a hardened alliance with Putin. Which means throwing down with Assad and his Ba'athist regime, which has long been uh, a client state of the Soviets, now Russians. So it really represents Russia's last you know, attempt to maintain a power stance in the region. Uh, otherwise, they have no other real strong relationships elsewhere throughout that region. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the actual potential ground troops, as I observed a couple of weeks ago, the Kurds in the north border near Turkey and in the northeastern part of Syria have made some gains against ISIL. Um, this is going to be a problem for Turkey, though, of course, who don't want to recognize their own Kurdish population. They've gone to great lengths to even outlaw the Kurdish writing system. So, uh, But otherwise, the Kurdish presence uh, represents a pretty viable solution. And some of the stories uh, coming from the BBC are starting to become almost bizarre. <laughs> the German... Uh, approach of converting Muslims to Christianity on the grounds that that gives them uh, a, a better argument for uh, asylum. That's strange, to say the least. Well, it would be one way to bolster numbers of church attendance, which has been down pretty much substantially every year for the past 40 years throughout Europe. Yeah, and... Uh, that does not seem like a like a potentially strong solution. Germany, of course, announcing today that they are not in a position to take any more refugees because uh, most of them are ideally headed there, but they're coming by land mainly through Turkey, and of course they're using Turkey to get to the Greek islands yep. that are completely overwhelmed with the humanitarian situation. That is an ongoing crisis in which there are no good options, as the saying goes. So it's a very interesting development regarding this act of terrorism. It's strange that ISIL would attack uh, Russia um, under the theory that Putin somehow is going to back down. He strikes me as a short man with a Napoleon complex. No, I don't think. Uh, in fact, uh, the expectations are that, if anything, the airstrikes will step up. They'll step up, and there have been, I think, reports, substantial reports, that probably have some validity that uh, Russia's intervention has actually bolstered some Syrian troop morale uh, because they feel a little more confident in the... Uh, big brother that they have. Um, so going forward, um, you wonder what's going to happen. Jimmy Carter, by the way, had a very interesting piece a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times about the Syrian crisis, uh, observing that he had met with Assad numerous times um, throughout over the years. And Assad Jr. Assad Jr. Yeah. and that, that one of the his main observation was that 
Assad had uh, that his his number one quality was quote stubbornness. Uh, that article, by the way, appeared on the twenty sixth of October. A plan to end the Syrian crisis. Many interesting points made by the former president. Of course, he's here referring to his work uh, on behalf of the Carter Center. And, of course, Jimmy Carter has been in the news a lot lately because of his health problems. But um, you may want to check this out. Um, Jimmy Carter has always favored the diplomatic uh, approach, uh, first and foremost. And uh, he had pointed out apparently several years ago about um, his sessions with uh, Bashir al-Assad al-Assad and the difficulties going forward. And uh, that's in the Monday, October 26th edition of the New York Times, a plan to end the Syrian crisis, perhaps worth checking out for his perspective on this difficult problem. I was going to maybe move to uh, the Keystone Pipeline. <laughs> um, I think that Obama did get this right. I think that it's interesting, by the way, that this came shortly after the Canadian elections. Yeah, the timing there was interesting. Uh, I think that the jobs created by its proponents have always been exaggerated. But let's not fool ourselves. The Alberta tar sands are an environmental catastrophe for the globe that this is going to have little impact on in reality. Tar sands oil is already being shipped to the United States via other pipelines. So, But this is, at the end of the day, at least a symbolic victory over big oil. And I don't think there's any question that Obama is using this uh, for the global warming climate change talks that are upcoming in Paris in a month. So too much ink, time and energy on Keystone in my book. Well, and the very nature of the, the messy, messy business of rendering coal sands viable as, as actual fuel um, is so costly and so... Uh, <sighs> cost ineffective really that the fact that the oil industry is relying upon it, it's a sort of a it's a hedge bet that uh, instead of putting our emphasis on alternative sources uh, more finely developing solar and wind powers and so forth um, that we're going to keep squeezing the turnip until every last drop is out and then we'll move on to renewable energy sources uh, is absurd you know, to wait for the cost of oil. And that was another factor was when the price of oil came down, that was in essence what made the coal sands no longer or not currently economically viable. Yeah. And it's interesting, by the way, that by postponing this decision, sometimes there's a big debate in politics about, you know, we need to do something now. This is sort of a palpable example of how doing nothing sometimes is the best thing. Right. Waiting for other developments to happen because who could have predicted that the United States would um, bolster its domestic production of, of oil. Um, of course, that's coming from fracking and that sort of thing. That's not good stuff in its own right. Um, and indeed, some of this oil is going to be transported via 
trucks and or uh, rail cars that um, will not diminish global warming in any significant way. But it might be fascinating to see if the new prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, um, decides to maybe, you know, halt some of this Alberta tar stands uh, uh, oil production because it uh, is incredibly inefficient. And uh, a documentary that you and I both saw a couple of years ago at the Ann Arbor Film Festival I think gave an incredibly visual, um, shall we say, image of what this project really looks like. And just the hugeness of it. The size of Vermont. Yeah, and, and in these uh, <laughs> Petropolis? Yeah, Petropolis. The, uh, the uh, Essentially a series of flyover shots of the uh, huge areas in question and uh, the way in which dirtied water and there are mass quantities of water that is simply used as like kind of toilet paper yeah uh, to cleanse this product and then just well it's dirty now so we pump it over here into these holding vats and uh it looked uh otherworldly and apocalyptic are it, really the only words to, to convey the horror that uh and as you say the size of vermont uh, which is a small state, admittedly, uh, in the context of a state the size of Michigan. But when you consider that much area just utterly burned out and wasted. Yeah, and of course the process, just to focus on that just for a second, got to think kind of of like porridge, mm. that this is kind of like, you know, cement. It's It's literally sand, and they have to pump extraordinary quantities of water High pre highly pressurized and Highly so forth, pressurized yeah. and then boil it almost to extract the hydrocarbons. It's an incredible process. There's, there's water wasted. There's waste product. And then at the end of the day, you, oh, hey, here's some petroleum. But seeing those rivers, uh, because this is one of the largest watersheds in the world, I think it's called the Kalakaska mm. River Watershed in Canada. It's it's just an environmental catastrophe all the way around. Um, and you would think that our friends to the north uh, would rethink this at some level. Um, justified, of course, in the past due to the high price of oil and um, predictions of stuff running out. But uh, renewable energy is certainly the way to go. And we need more of it. And we need a concerted infrastructure approach to getting off fossil fuels as much as possible. Well, that's exactly it. Is it's a it's a systematic change. And when you're relying on uh, an industry that's goals are completely self-serving and not long term at all beyond you know quarterly reports or uh, shareholders uh, accountings. Um, for the, the the viability of that to continue is just uh, it's not in the long term picture. Um, so there hasn't been enough spending uh, from government to sort of pivot is what we need to do here is pivot away from those older uh, fuel sources and into these uh, newer, more viable ones for long term, uh, you know, non global warmal uh, global warmal warming producing effects 
uh, to occur. And it's one of those things where, well, there's not enough money in it yet, so we're not going to put any investments into it because we won't put the investments into new technologies until it's a guaranteed money maker. But this isn't really about making money. Um, at the end of the day, it's about long-term survival of uh, life on Earth as we know it. Indeed. And, of course, you know, the so-called war on coal that Mitch McConnell has invoked repeatedly for many years against Obama has been sort of a fib, sort of a fairy tale and scary sale to the public. Um, the utility companies have been moving away from coal for other reasons. And, yes, it's sad. And it's interesting, by the way, that the Chinese— Government this past week admitted that their emissions from coal are way underreported. How fascinating to read that there are these, uh, quote, Rube Goldberg machines being attached to automobiles here in the United States to look at the emissions coming yep. out of the tailpipes. VW may not be the only car company in this boat. Oh, they're not. You can be sure that most of the companies are doing this. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's an old saying from sports, but I think it holds true probably for most of the business world, uh, much of it, if not most, uh, that if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, it's like doping in sports or, you know, the the Atlanta school testing cheating scandal, these, these sorts of things. Inside edge. And this, of course, is part of this competitive culture that we live in where the bottom line is the only thing that unfortunately way too many people care about right but it's not surprising that the the levels of coal pollution in china are greater than reported by the official reports because i mean all you have to do is talk to anybody uh, who's come back from a visit to china and any of the major urban centers there uh they're horrified and shocked you know it hasn't been that bad here for many years yeah, because to think about China, uh, you know, realistically, they're going through an industrial revolution that was reminiscent of what the United States was going through between, say, 1890 and 1920. Right. With massive uh, industrialization. I heard a fascinating story about the element iron and how uh, per capita iron production slash consumption is sort of an indicator of total standard of living. Mm. This, by the way, involves incredible quantities of coal um, for the chemical process to create steel, which, of course, has been a big part of China's production. But when you see people walking around in these major cities wearing masks, um. I think there was somebody that jokingly that started selling cans of fresh air. <laughs> That's scary stuff. Yeah. And it's well established, by the way, that a big urban area like London back in the, you know, 40s and 50s of the, of the last uh, de um, century had enormous problems with pollution. Mm -hmm. Stories about London's pollution problems coming back because of the uh, mass of humanity that's uh, dwelling in that greater metropolitan area. Um, these are, I think, serious issues that need to be spoken about at the upcoming climate change uh, convention or whatever they're, they're calling it uh, in Paris, I believe, in a month. So I think that uh, 
This also, by the way, just for the record, this Keystone project could be reversed. Uh, look for the Republicans in the debate tomorrow night to all highlight uh, the Keystone decision that Obama made. <laughs> that was, of course, based on studies by the State Department. There were all kinds of delays. There were environmental impact reports, that sort of thing. So, uh, well, I, I don't think anybody is realistically expecting any serious consideration of global warming as a topic in the upcoming Republican debate in Wisconsin, of all places, where Scott Walker can be a uh, anxious observant. But I just uh, looked down and before me here is this interesting statistic relevant to our discussion of China. Estimated number of deaths, this is from the Harper's Index, of course, estimated number of deaths each day in China attributable to air pollution, 4,400 yeah. per day. And, of course, in, in, a, in another overpopulated nation uh, like India, they have the same problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 this is another massive society in terms of human beings. But undergoing this huge shift in uh, living standards and expectations and in how, the economy. And how refreshing to hear that uh, in a couple of days China is going to have an Internet Singles Day that uh, Alibaba is predicting to be the largest sh Internet shopping day in the history of human civilization. I read this little blurb. The justification for this was to cure singles of loneliness. And I thought to myself, oh, no, the consumer mentality is the solution to everything, right? Well, unfortunately, that's kind of what the Internet is feeding into. But this is basically just online dating. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, people just need to go out there and meet other people. There's a billion, how many billion people in China? Just walk around. You'll meet somebody. 1.3. And, of course, we've learned this from the recent uh, reversal of the one-child policy. Right. Yep. That reduced, by the way, just for the record, China's population by 400 million. That's the United States and Canada combined. More than. Wow. And, of course, there's a lot of controversy about the one child China policy, but I think the Chinese government back in 1980 or 79, I think it was 70, 80, when they introduced it as an uh, official policy, they said, we have to do something. And this has to, this is how radical it has to be. Yep. Uh, i definitely like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up shortly. Um. I'll just mention real quickly, since I saw it three times on my way down Packard, uh, if you're a pedestrian, don't jart out into the middle of the street. Uh, there's people running across the streets, and it's, it's dark Looking at early. their cell phones? Looking at their <laughs> cell phones sometimes, but just uh, it's very hard for uh, drivers to see uh, when it gets dark this early, and people are still getting used to it. So uh, go with caution. Here's an interesting item from a recent Harper's Index about propaganda, in my opinion. It says, percentage of people living in Turkey who say they are very concerned about ISIL, 33. Percent of people living in Israel, 44. People in the United States, 68. Well, yeah, that's uh, the climate of fear that's fostered by um, propaganda agencies like 
Fox News, and uh, Americans perversely seem to 